My name is Andrew McGowan. I'm a musician and athlete who geeks out on fashion, art, and great food. I spent time working with elite performers, repairing instruments for major symphony musicians, training for marathons, and designing wardrobes from everyone from freshman college students to big city lawyers. Trequartista is the Italian word for playmaker and is used to describe a particularly creative role on the soccer pitch, typically behind the central striker. And as the musical Trequartista, I aim to kickstart conversations about topics and areas that I think are underrated, underdiscussed, or particularly important to a sustainable high-octane life. This is the Musical Trek Artista, the podcast. Names. Awesome. Gil Robertson, welcome to the show. Uh, <laughs> we've So for everybody who's just listening, we've been talking for about 35 minutes. <laughs> but we've had a really interesting conversation, and I'm excited to see where else this goes. Um, so we were talking about prepping uh, military band euphonium auditions and how it can be really uh, a bit destructive because you'd spend all this time preparing. I, I mentioned that I was practicing six, seven hours a day. She mentioned that her student was prepping seven to eight hours a day, and like we didn't get invited to finals, no feedback. It's brutal. Um, but the point I was going to make is I think there's a turning point in um, the career aspirations of young euphonium players where like military band really isn't on the radar for them anymore. And I think that's kind of interesting. Well, I mean, like, for instance, like I mentioned earlier, anyone that's going to practice seven or eight hours a day, you're, you're thinking that doing another hour, maybe I should do nine hours a day or maybe yeah. I should do 10 you're driving yourself to the point of probably going crazy over it. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I can't imagine having eight hours of practice in one day. I've never done that in my career, even when yeah. I've had recordings. So I, I feel like what happens when you put that much time into it, <clears throat> you're like, you're going to be even more disappointed when you don't get there because you've yeah. devoted so much. And then you feel yeah. like, Oh my gosh, I didn't practice enough. I don't know that more is always, you know, doing more time is always better. I yeah. just think that, you know, focus of maybe two hour practice, you know, and being super focused and just trying to really yeah. do that. That way you're not feeling guilty if you don't get invited because you didn't devote your life for a month. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. One of the lessons I've had a really hard time learning until this semester was something I heard Tim Plavian say. He said something like, uh, is that some master class when I was an undergrad? He said, if you're having to practice more than two and a half hours a day, you need to get better at sight reading. <laughs> Yeah, okay, I can totally agree with that. I can yeah. totally agree with that because I mean, when I'm learning, when I'm when I'm prepping for recitals and stuff like that, I'm not someone who wants to work six months in advance. I would be so yeah. sick of that music. I'd be so over it. I'm a I'm a person who's going to start really cranking it on about four or five weeks before, yeah. you know, and then I know I and I pace it that way. But I'm not doing seven hours ever, like you know. I mean, yeah. I just that's not going to help me play it better. I think what makes me play something better is is repetitive sessions. So yeah. like if I play and I work on something new today and it's Monday or today's Saturday, then I better run through it either later on this evening what I was trying what I was shedding or I need to do it tomorrow. Yeah. If I don't shed what I did yesterday or today tomorrow, then pretty much a lot of it's going to be a wash. Yeah. And I don't know if that's for everybody, but for me if I do if I play again the next day and the next day you can see progress and you can feel it. If I'm playing seven hours a day, seven hours a day, seven hours a day. Yeah. I don't know that I'm going to see the progress. Yeah. You know what I mean? I've tried <laughs> if you to see someone every single day of the week 
we don't notice if they've lost weight or not lost weight, right? Yeah. But if you only see them once a month, you can tell. So I feel like just seeing, I think they're playing all the time. I don't know if that's a good analogy or not, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think, I don't know. My, my thought on that is I would be so burnt out with it, but everyone yeah. is different. Yeah. I've tried to really embrace the idea of using rest as a way of, uh, catapulting um progress it's and it's not an all the time thing it's a you need to know when you need to rest thing and i think part of that is like having the um the discipline to be able to keep the separation of like okay i done my two hours for today maybe i didn't get to this excerpt but i need to prioritize that one tomorrow um and this actually comes back uh, lance leduke talks about this where um I think it's a music practice coach. He brings in um, uh, flow from Mihai Shiksenmihai, where he's talking about how, like, if you're optimizing for flow um, and the mental gains that you make on a single day, you shouldn't have, like, if you want to make sure that the um, the electrical signals in your neurons are continuing to insulate, insulate exponentially, you can't skip more than one day of the same excerpt. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. I never thought about it that yeah. way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people live in guilt too. That <clears throat> instead of feeling good about yeah. their progress, they're feeling bad because they didn't practice yesterday. And you yeah. know what I mean? Like, you know, if that's there's not helpful you at really all. <laughs> do, yeah, I'm just saying. But if you really want to do this, and mm -hmm. then you don't get to do it, you can't beat mm -hmm. yourself up too much. I mean, yeah. I, people have asked me, like, I'll I'll do a clinic with somebody, and then ten years later they'll ask me, and they're going, "Oh my God, you have the same dang energy you had when I met you twenty years ago. How do you do yeah. it?" You got to know when to say no, but yeah. you, it, you know, and, and the other thing is, is you got to do other things. Like, I don't know. I wanted to practice yesterday. I got to school and I got a phone call, sabotage my workout. Then I had to go to my piano rehearsal, you know, then I went to my yeah. office to practice. Students were in my office. So it's like, dang it, packed my bag up. I went and I worked out. Then I, you know, then I went home and I was so tired. I thought, you know, and I didn't practice what I wanted to yesterday, but yeah. I'm not going to beat myself up today because yeah. otherwise I think that's what happens. But my point is, if you really want to do something and you don't want to mess it up, do it first thing in the morning. Yeah. I always go to the gym early. I always do that. And then I always get to my office early. Those are my practice things. Because yeah. by the end of the day, man, someone's on my office is like popular hang. I guess I don't know. I mean, it's like this year seems like more than ever. They want to just come by to say hi. You know, I, and, and it's, you know, it's nice, but I can't hardly practice at school. My mistake is I park my car. I get there early. So I get the good spot. So they'll call and they'll, they'll send a text. Dr. Robertson, you still here? You know darn well they're standing by my car, you know. <laughs> but I think, you know, if you want to really, really practice for those things, I think pacing is important. I think, you know, make it, building in the time that you'll get your lesson done or your, your practice done that's going to be productive. And if that means super early in the morning or late at night. And <clears throat> I just bought a tuner, tuner metronome, even though I have the stuff on my phone. Because I don't want to look at my tuner and someone texts. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, you know, trying to get yourself away from all the distractions is helpful. So I, I brought so my too. horn home. My horn is here at the house. No one's going to bother me here. It's yeah. here. And I don't like to practice at my house. But I know today, impossible. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing I've really tried to do this year, too, is really, like, devote the optimal amount of focus to the time I spend on the horn, especially this semester. Um, I had a couple of lessons with Dave Federley in January. That's like all we talked about was, okay, how do we decrease the air pressure going into the horn so that the sound opens? And how do you have the most amount of focus in a short amount of time? 
because I mean, grad school is really busy. So you don't have time to practice a zillion hours a day, even though you might want to. Yes, but grad school's not nearly as busy as like the real life. Oh yeah, I know that. Yeah, this this isn't something you'd know. I taught fifth grade math for a little while. I've like been a professional instrument technician. I took about four years between my bachelor's and my master's degree. So you know, <laughs> you know. yeah, it was brutal. <laughs> Well, you know, I, but you know, I tell my students, you know, the busier you are now, the better, because then you'll be used to that. You know, I think the master's degree is kind of the easiest degree. You know, you'd only have nine credits a semester, you know, it feels easy after doing all the mess you have to do with gen eds, but you don't have to be in the marching band, you know, so your time is your time. But the problem is people don't know how to manage all that free time. You know, they don't, they've got so much free time that you don't know where to go. And I'm someone who likes structure. I like a schedule. When the end Yeah. Yeah. of the Me semester too. hits, Gail is not happy because I got, I don't know what to do with all that time. So I'm riding the bike somewhere. I'm doing this and I'm like, well, you know, it's like, I go kind of crazy with too many things that I want to do that I almost feel like I don't get anything done because I can't decide what I like the order. When my schedule comes out and I get all the students who's on Monday at eight, who's at nine, I always feel like a sense of ease and calm. Yeah, I have the problem I have is like, I have a break that'll hit and I'll say like, Oh, I'll have like, a zillion hours to do everything every day, I can accomplish I can write a 10 minute piece for band in two weeks. Yeah. No, I no, I can't. But I'll, I'll convince myself like, Oh, that's more than enough time. And But I you the can way I'm going if to you do it really is I'm wanted going to to. I'm I'm going to roll. Well, th this is kind of the point I'm making is like, I'll roll out a, like, because I, I love structure too. And in a break, I'll like roll out of bed at 6am every day, I'll go work out immediately, I'll come home, I'll write for four hours, I'll go to work, and then I'll come back, I'll eat dinner, I'll practice, and I'll go hang with my girlfriend and go to bed. And it's like, I mean, like, don't get me wrong, that's a great day. But it like, <laughs> it adds up after a while. And then I'll, I'll be on like day 13. And I'm like, wow, this 10 minute piece is like, bad. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't so know. just I, I think I, I find I'm kind I find of like personally, you. yeah, I find personally, I Traffic just need to Monday be more realistic is like your. with my time. Like, th I think things take a little longer than I want to, I want to convince myself that they do. Well, I don't like to rush writing something. I have to be in the right frame, you know, the right time of it. And sometimes it's just, I'm laying there and I'm thinking about, okay, get up. And then I know exactly what I want to do. And I just go right at it. And I can write two or three minutes worth of music in that first session. And then I, I get to a cadence or somewhere in there and then I put it aside and then I'm still thinking about it and I've already know what I, and then the next Yeah. time I sit down, I know what I want to do. Like I'm writing a 12 tone row piece for one of my students. who's a, he's a computer guy by day. And, um, his name is Greg Lindstrom. He's, a, he, you know, he does that. And then he comes and takes lessons at UCA and then his life, his love is the tuba, but his, his job is that. So I'm writing this piece called the code cracker. And it's, a, it's, That's awesome. a, you know, Gail never writes 12 tone toe stuff. Mm -hmm. 12, 12 tone row stuff but it's the coolest 12 tone row ever and i can That's awesome. it swings boom bada body bada 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 Yeah. that's a 12 tone row and it you know and it so i already been writing that in my head for weeks i haven't finished it because somebody's got a recital coming up that i need to write something for them so that piece is still right here ready to go but you know i'm you know it's i don't know i i, I this my goal today and tomorrow is to finish those two pieces if i can Yeah, I I always found I don't know who's going to hijack me with Super Bowl whatever mess and who knows, but I'm I always going to found try really hard. I always found twelve tone music kind of writes itself. And uh, the the first time I really reckoned with that, I was working on this jazz chart, and they want twelve tone jazz chart. And one of the things I thought about was, well, if I use enough extensions, 
I can get all 12 tones in the harmony. And then I just use the notes in the harmony or the melody over what it, where it, like the chords it fits in the harmony. And then it will always sound nice, even though it's 12 tone. That's kind of cool. <laughs> and Yeah, then, I'm right. This is so unaccompanied thing, yeah. but I'm already imagining it. That would be cool with lots of extensions. Yeah. Yeah, I want and to hear that. yeah. And so the idea, like my writing process is a little weird. I was telling, um, I'm, we have the, um, University of Illinois conducting symposium going on right now. So I played five hours of band standards yesterday. It was so much fun. <laughs> but I was talking with one of the conductors about uh, my composition process after at, like at the hang. And uh, the way I described it was I just tried to eliminate as many choices that I have to make as possible, because then the piece becomes really easy to write, it becomes a, like a wacky complex puzzle that I have to solve. And the art is how I make the interesting music out of all of the limitations I've crafted. And it makes writing like really easy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I wonder, um, you know, everyone, I mean, I remember going to women's brass conferences and like I facilitated the uh, guest con composers forum, you know, and ask questions. And so I would ask each one of them, you know, and everyone has a different process, mm -hmm. you know, and everyone does things in a different way. There's a lot of people that are composers that have learned that or they studied it through academia. And they've done like this class and they've they've taken all that i don't know about you but i've never i only had one semester of lessons with composition during mm -hmm. my doctorate i studied with ricardo lorenz but wow. i've never studied or anything like that i'm more self-taught i've listened i've transcribed i feel mm -hmm. like i've studied with the best composers out there because during my years of playing out disney i transcribed you know stuff by nat king cole for tuba quartet That's you know awesome. stuff that was by you know all the danny elfman stuff i mean i know john williams danny elfman like nobody's business because I didn't get a piano score or get something from the internet. We it listen. was all transcribed, you know, and so we yeah. we've learned in a different way. I you know, I don't I don't use a piano when I compose where all these other trained composers for the women's brass conference were talking about, oh, I studied composition when I was seven and blah, blah. and I'm like me and Barbara York Barbara York was there too. Because Barbara York was saying how she didn't do she hated school. She did yeah. not like she quit school because she didn't like all the twelve tone mess. She said mm. that was not her and she didn't want to do it. They would yeah. go drinking instead. <laughs> yeah, I, I, so my bachelor's degree is in composition and euphonium. And then like my master's degree is technically euphonium performance and literature. But because like, the way master's degrees are structured, there's so many electives, like yeah. all of my electives are composition classes. So Good. it's kind of a double degree. And like, um, so I've, I've taken composition lessons, I go to the composer forum every week. Um, I took orchestration, well, advanced orchestration, that was an awesome class. Um, and then uh, I'm in jazz composition seminar this semester, which is cool. That that class is has pushed me as a composer in a way I never thought. And part of it is because like, I don't, I mean, like as a euphonium player, I don't have the greatest amount of experience with jazz, but like the projects that we'll get will be like, sometimes it's just, you need to turn in five tunes next week. And you only yeah. have to bring, you only have to bring the lead sheets, but it's five tunes. And so I would do this, that. I love that class. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, well, and that's one of the things I've really I can write learned. one right now. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah I, I mean, that. like, I can I can do I can do a pretty like, especially if I think about the harmony first, and then build the melody after it, I can do a tune in probably 40 minutes, but I can do a reasonably good tune with a pretty clean lead sheet in about 40 minutes. And one of the things I've really appreciated about that is like, it's really honed the fundamentals of my writing. Because like so many composers now are so focused on the textural components in the soundscape that like they lose some of the general audience appeal of a lot of music, which is 
a singable melody or really interesting harmonic structure or superimposition of the two. And I think that having um, a toolbox that is a well-rounded menagerie of all of those things is what makes a really strong composer. And uh, this is actually a really great time, I think, to transition to um, talking about some of the content of your paper, because um, I had a, a really good time reading that the other day. And one of the things I'm, I was coming away with and that it made me think about was, um, I think one of the problems with music school right now is that um, people who primarily write chamber and orchestral music are the people who teach arranging and orchestration. And so... Uh, they don't know what we do, do they? No, they don't. And fundamentally, the um, and I, I was um, having a conversation with a couple of people about this this semester. We we uh, played this symphony for band uh, by a very famous orchestral composer. It's like one of his first pieces for uh, wind ensemble. And the thing that we kept saying is like, you know, this music this music is really high quality. It's very obvious that like, he's an incredible composer, but you can really tell this is his first piece for band. And I think a lot of that is a fundamental lack of understanding of the history of the medium. And I didn't have a role of the instruments are. Yes. And how, how, how orchestra and band are very different mediums. The, the analogy I've started using with, um, undergrad com uh, the undergrad composers here that uh, I get into conversations with a lot is um, orchestral music is painting band music is ceramics and the reason I describe it that way is in when you're writing for orchestra the strings are kind of the canvas or the texture of the paint that you add color to with the winds and percussion versus in the wind ensemble you need to be able to make texture and color with the same instruments true and so having something that's three-dimensional you have a little more to play with in the orchestra because you have an extra timbre so you really have four layers instead of three and in the wind ensemble you really have three unless you really start to split hairs with it but that's the art of it right yeah <laughs> and so um i don't think uh like and the thing that struck me uh in your paper was like talking about how the role of the euphonium has diminished so much and i really agree and i think a lot of that is because i mean you wouldn't even have to look at the concerti to know what the euphonium is capable of. You could look at almost exclusively the stars and stripes forever and understand that like euphonium has, euphonium has the capacity to change roles every two and a half measures. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you, you talked about a couple of things I want to touch on. I mean, when you mentioned jazz and how your background to that is limited because of being a euphonium player, I'm very lucky that I started as a saxophone player. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, they, my friend Laura Leinberger said that euphonium players can't swing from a rope. <laughs> you know? She should be you Rich know? Madison. <laughs> but, 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 you know, and it's not that the instrument can or the player can't, but because they weren't exposed. Like for me, I was in jazz band from, well, they tried to form a jazz band in middle school and it didn't happen. But my, my first jazz band experience, was when I hit high school, you know, I was playing trombone or I think Barry sax. But when I went, you know, through my undergraduate, I played Barry sax in the, the jazz band, I think three and a half years there. And then when I went to Michigan or to um, IU, I played in the big bands there all semesters too. So I've had the good exposure. Plus then I taught jazz 
I was the head of the jazz area at my university here for about three years. That's and awesome. I ran our second band and I ran the top band. So I've gotten to really look closely at scores and stuff for that where most euphonium players wouldn't. Yeah. The other thing is I was going to say is that, you know, you talk about those, those courses, you know, and the people teaching those classes that, mm -hmm. you know, are writing the books for, you know, the, the um, composition and all that composing. My teacher that taught, and I won't mention their name, had been at Michigan State University for 50-something years. And he was using a book that was from the 70s. And mm -hmm. in that book, it was mentioning, oh, if, in case you have a, you know, maybe it was the 80s, I think. It, you had to get it, it was print on demand because it's so old. If you, if you had access to a computer, it wasn't, didn't even, wasn't even modern. But the handouts the man was using for that class, there wasn't a euphonium handout. Yeah. And so I created one in his same, the exact same style as the one he had for trumpet. And I gave him one. He let me present the euphonium to the class. I guess it was That's just awesome. to me a bone. And then along comes Gretchen Renshaw, and she took that class like the next year, and she's in that same class, and she shows me this stuff. And he didn't even, I even said, you can have this handout, put it in your thing. He didn't even include it in his packet. And it's That's like, crazy. So they never talked about euphonium ever in that class. Yeah. I, and that was for 50 years at that school. That's took that class. Yeah. And when that's so upsetting, given like, I mean, Michigan State is a very reputable band school. Senator <laughs> Falcone was there. I know. Yeah. I know. Like, it's nuts. But, you know, here's this teacher. And again, I'm not trying to say anything bad. He's a wonderful composer, different things, but it was, yeah. wasn't a priority to talk about it. I mean, I um, I don't know. I feel like, and as you know from my paper, you know, it was. I don't know if we've told them what my paper was, but you know, it's pretty much is the cello still. You know, it's is it still the the cello, the euphonium is still the cello of the wind band is is the whole thing behind it. And I dug into. I first started out was just gonna be looking at band excerpts and stuff like that, and then mm -hmm. it started making me mad because yeah. there's all these great parts. You know, mm -hmm. like when you look at all the transcriptions from ML. You know, Matt, Matthew Lake. You know, our, our I'm trying to think of all different ones. Uh, Claude, Claude, uh, I, I'm like, now I'm having a brain fart. I was going to say yeah. Claude. I, I mean, Sef the, all the Sephronic transcriptions for the Marine Band kind of speak for themselves. Those were great. Yeah. And help, um, you know, anything Granger, those were original works. Anything Sousa. Yeah. Then I'm like, well, why is our stuff so weird now? So then yeah. I started looking at all the harmony books and all the composition books. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking the Piston and all, I mean, all of those. Yeah, and then and I, I mean, went further back because Michigan State had a lot of really great band stuff. I found stuff yeah. from like in the late 1800s. Well, the problem started there, and that's in my paper where there's yeah there were books that talked great about the um, euphonium's role, it, and it would say that uh, like there's uh, nothing you know they were kind of the shortstop of the band. Mm -hmm. They could they did not belong to a section because they traveled to so many. Yeah. And then another book would say if he is a bit keen, you know, give him something only to practice, yeah. but nothing too difficult because it won't be clean. I mean, it basically said, don't do it. You know, don't give anything too hard for this instrument. I mean, it was, it was in a That's book. That's crazy. A published book. Yeah. And then I, there was another book that had chapters on instruments soon to be obsolete. And yeah, the forces. Mandolin was in there. I think C melody, saxophone, cerusophone. I mean, Alpha mm. Clyde was in there and then euphonium was listed there. Yeah. Scary, you know that yeah. person thought we were gone, but those were that. I think that's where it started. So now, if anyone buys the Walter Piston or they buy some of those mm -hmm. different books that are out there the, for composition, they the, don't say anything about euphonium in it. The standard text for most orchestration classes right now is either um, Norman Del Mar's Anatomy of the Orchestra or um, 
Samuel Adler's uh, the study Adler of orchestration. The so I own the Adler third edition, and I went to check, and it's better than I anticipated. the The Adler says that like um, euphonium. I think the specific statement is like um, composers like Strauss and Holst found a particular use for the euphonium and its ability, or like the tenor horn or tenor tuba and its ability to play. Uh, quite vibrantly in the upper register where the tuba parts are more difficult. And that's where I was like, um, what? Because <laughs> I mean, I've taken a lot of tuba lessons during my master's degree too. And like, I mean, there's problems all over the, like they don't even understand how to write for tuba. How can we ask them to understand how to write for euphonium? Because the, the Adler page talks about how like, um, all orchestral tubas play B flat or C tuba, which is definitely not true. I would say far more play F tuba than C tuba. It, it talks about how like pedal E flat is the lowest note tuba can play. And I'm like, that's, I mean, I, if I warm up for five minutes, I have pedal C. I have, I have pedal C if I've warmed up for five minutes. And like, I've been playing tuba maybe three years. Like, this is insane. Like, and then uh, like all of all of these lists about how like Wagner and Berlioz parts are like too high for the tubas and it's really difficult for them. And I was like, I, clearly these guys don't know very much about tuba because like no. all, all of the college tuba players I know play Wagner and Berlioz all the time. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, they're not asking the right people, you know, and the thing is, yeah. is like I was saying earlier, I mean, the, there's, there's just a lot of wrong stuff, even in the books that are like the brass method classes, they'll yeah. say wrong things too. And mm -hmm. that's what's teaching people that are wanting to be band directors, you know, about our instruments. So it starts in yeah. other areas, not just composition. And it's I funny. Know, I, I think it's funny that like, people are relying so much on, on the this knowledge and not so much on the this knowledge. Because that's one of the things that I think has set my band music personally or a bit going apart. going and asking a tuba player. Yeah. Going and ask someone in person. Don't yeah. look at the book. Yeah. Not written or, by a tuba player, right? I, I, yeah. And, well, and I was thinking about um, the thing you were saying earlier about how you learn so much just from listening. I think uh, another fundamental issue of people writing band music now is like, and part of not understanding the medium is like, yeah, it's not really taught in school, but they don't know band music either. You know what they want to do? They want to do score study. They're not used in their ears. Yeah. And I feel like the score study is cool, but listen to recording and listen to what you're hearing and write down what you're hearing. And then yeah. maybe you go look at the score. I don't know. Maybe that's kind of bass backwards, but I don't know. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't say that. The thing I would say is like, I think, because uh, like I do, I don't, I don't like to look at scores a ton. I really like to spend time listening. What I'll do is I'll like plan a long workout or a long run and I'll queue up a playlist of things I want to dig into. Um, I used to like train for marathons and stuff. And so like if I was doing a 10 mile run that day, I'd have a playlist of all the music that I wanted to get through. And I'd really like, I mean, when you're pounding the pavement for 10 miles, you know, you're going to be running for about an hour and a half. Like that's a long time to really let your brain stray into the music and figure out what's going on. And the thing I came away with was stuff like, well, why would Mazlanka use this kind of gesture? And why would he take so long? And isn't that a lot like some of the gestures Steve Reich would make? And where did that influence come from? Why is that so effective? And then I tried to implement something like that in, in my piece. Or um, the, the piece I spent the most time studying in the last year was um, the Guy Duker transcription of Pines of Rome, the the really old uh -huh. one that's like yep. incredible. And the thing I kept coming back to is why is it so significant that he scores nine part clarinet choir in this piece? 
there's reason. And a lot of it is so to have all of the low string parts covered at the beginning of the second movement. But like the oaky, by the same thick kind of voice. reed sound, yeah. That, but the, like this thick, reedy clarinet sound really gives you this idea of like, oh, like, and hearing that in a rehearsal last year was like, oh, like if there's a sound that's like a big ancient forest, it's that. Yeah. And like having the exposure to that kind of a sound color that I'm pretty sure no collegiate band composer would think about writing right now. Well, I mean, if you think about what you're saying, you know, you've got this piece that had all these strings, but now yeah. some Yahoo comes along and they're going to give some to the clarinet, some to the saxophone, some yeah. to the bassoon. Well, all those things are going to, they're going to sound so different. It's yeah. not going to have that same blend as it being all the strings. So I think yeah. that is brilliant. Well, you know, and Susan the color gets really had, special. Didn't Sousa's band carried? I mean, he had a lot of clarinets in that. In oh, the clarinet, yeah. in the all band. kinds. That's, yeah. Fun. Well, and that's one of the things that I think people miss. Uh, the Sousa band um, needed to function not only as a symphonic wind ensemble, but as a load of chamber ensembles. And this is the fundamental issue I see with so many band composers. They don't understand that the wind ensemble is like 80 chamber groups and can function like 80 chamber groups. The only composer I've really seen do this incredibly expertly in the last 10 to 15 years is David Mislanka, personally. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of when I've done marching band scores and I write like chamber groups. When you mentioned that, it made me think of, that's kind of how I do for that. I don't do that cookie cutter mold. The tenor yeah. sax is the same as euphonium part. The yeah. alto sax is the same as the mellophone part. You know the clarinet's the same as the trumpet part i mean yeah. i try to get woodwind sections i try to get colors within and i don't have there'll be places where the tenor sax is not playing when the mm. euphoniums are and there's places where the euphoniums i mean yeah. i i really believe that 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 color thing and this this concept you're mentioning now about this chamber stuff can happen anywhere not just indoors yeah absolutely i mean um, how do they score for drum corps i mean there's got to be some really really good cool math to that yeah Seriously. Not just writing for, you know, trumpet ensemble, you know? Yeah, I, I, and I haven't studied nearly as much brass band music as I probably should have, but I imagine that writing for drum corps is much more... That's, yeah, that's really kind of the goal. I have a, I have a couple big Study projects I'm doing this semester. Stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I have a couple big projects this semester. I'm finishing, like, this big symphonic poem for wind ensemble. Um, it's, like, 16 minutes, four movements, huge piece. It's really, really fun. Wow. Um, uh, and it's it's basically a national parks tour of the United States. It's really fun. Is oh, I want to see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It was inspired by Pines of Rome. That's why I was studying that piece so much. Um, and it was uh, I wrote it as a retirement gift for the director of bands who just uh, retired from Illinois because uh, I wanted him to have a piece to do with festival bands that would be really cool and challenging Indeed. more here than challenging here, which is really cool. I mean, it's got some yeah. challenges here, but it's more challenging here, which I think is really fun and the kind of music that he likes to teach. Um, then have you studied uh, Julie Giroux's music? Here and there. I have uh, her fifth or sixth symphony. Out. Yeah, I have, I have the score for her fifth or, fifth or sixth symphony, but I know a lot of her stuff. She's someone who doesn't jip the euphonium for sure, because she'll write the yeah. all in her euphonium parts. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fun. We're playing the Jim Stevenson Symphony in the Wind Symphony here right now, and that's really fun. Um, yeah. Uh, and then I'm actually doing, I'm planning to submit for the Marine Band competition this year. I don't know if that's something you know about. Um, the Marine Band has... Uh, that solo the, competition? 
No, the call for scores competition. So um, there, the instrumentation is kind of specific, but the all the limitations are is the piece has to be under 13 minutes. It has to be for the instrumentation they've specified. It can't have been performed by anybody else because the the prize is like um, it's cash and a premiere by the Marine Band, which is like, and I don't think there's an application fee. Whoa. It's like the fact that there wouldn't be people submitting for this like hurts my brain. Well, you got to know about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Well, they were, they were advertising the crap out of it at Midwest. So I hope a lot of people submit, but so my plan is to, um, I have, uh, I have the seedlings for a piece stewing for that. And then, um, this, uh, the companion for this project that, uh, you're contributing to right now is a concerto for euphonium and orchestra. So the idea is, um, I wanted to, do an inventory and basically have like a, a document that establishes the state of the euphonium, um, a bit that's like a massive and in-depth, well, maybe not massive, but like a really in-depth and accessible orchestrational resource for composers made by euphonium players that says, here's what we do, here's examples of how it works that are great, and then by the end, we have a work that synthesizes all of that stuff and all of the crazy extended technique from some of the experimental euphonium players that I happen to know to really make this into something that's really cool. And then a concerto that showcases all of it in an ensemble that has a huge variety of instruments. Where the Then uh, the other part of it was like, there's not really that many works for euphonium and orchestra, which is kind of nuts. I, it I might took, be that it was I a took, band I, and then they created yeah. an orchestra one, but which ones have yeah. really been written for euphonium and orchestra only? It, there's like, uh, euphonium and orchestra only might be two or three. One, like, I know the Cosma is available for orchestra on rental, yeah. but I don't think it was written for orchestra first. Yeah, I, the only one I know of that was orchestra first, and I don't think it has a band version, is Linkla. As far as concerti, yeah. and I yeah. think I, when I when I took inventory of it a couple of years ago, I think I found ten that have orchestral versions. Check out um, Adam Fry's CDs that he's done with the euphonium concerti yeah. with the orchestra. I think isn't there Alan Fenstein? I'm not I'm, or Fenstein. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm just trying to think. Of there might be stuff that he got commissioned for orchestra. I don't know. Yeah. I, don't, I can't remember that CD. Yeah, I can't remember. Um, I found a couple concerti, like obviously the big ones, because like Horvitz, Ellerby, Kozma, um, Linkola are all available with orchestra. I found a few more, but like I don't only find like one person that had ever played them. There's this kind of wacky yeah. concerto Demandre premiered, but I um, like, it's, I mean, it's so few. And yeah. so the idea was to have something that was like, okay, I I think I have a really fundamental understanding of like how all over the place the euphonium can be and how it can be supported by all of these different sections in such a unique way. I want to make that as a piece of music. And the idea Good. is to That's do, um, I've been really inspired by the music of uh, Georgie Ligeti um, over the course of my career. He was um, a huge inspiration for the teacher of my master's degree, who is the teacher of my, well, one of the teachers for my professor of composition in undergrad. So um, I'm, I'm studying his Hamburg concerto, which is his French horn concerto, and it's seven short movements rather than three longer ones or two longer oh, wow. ones. And so with one of the things I thought about, I was like, okay, well, seven short movements that are all based on similar thematic material could probably be written pretty fast. 
and each one can have its own d super distinct character. So I can show off everything that the euphonium can do in a bunch of different situations. That sounds great. It reminds me of a piece I saw at the first Women's Brass Conference years ago, and um, it, I can't remember the name of it. Something with oranges or whatever for Trump for trombone, but it introduced all the different mutes. Yeah, that's cool. It was you know each movement had like one was a plunger, another one was a cup mute, but. I mean, if you're thinking about doing something like that, then definitely include a movement that has the mute. Yeah, I'm, I'm planning to do mutes. I was thinking about inventing a mute for the concerto, but I thought that might be kind of excessive. What I thought about doing instead, because this is kind of the kick I'm on, um, is uh, so for the improvised music ensemble last semester, we had a, a class period where we had to create a preparation for our instrument. And my friend Jessica, uh, who plays French horn in a group, brought in a load of different kinds of cooking sheet to mute her French horn with. So she had parchment paper and aluminum foil, all these tiny little oh, things, wow. real like almost harder to get than not. And that wouldn't mute the sound of the French horn, but would alter the timbre because they would buzz differently on the brass as she played. And I loved it. And that's kind of been my kick recently. It's like tiny oh, little things cool. like that are like, what would happen if you stuck a water bottle in your horn? How would that mute the sound? How would it change it? And what can we explore with that? So that rather than going like, I mean, I'll probably include straight mute for a movement because like, why not? But I thought that would be a much more interesting idea in terms of figuring out like where, like where wacky can we take this? And then um, is, or, uh, is, have you heard of the euphonium player, Maddie Barber? I think he's based out in California. Super experimental, heavy brass player. Really cool. Um, he has uh, an album called In the Tank. He recorded it in this, it up. this recording studio in Colorado that's like an old nuclear shelter and has not quite infinite reverb. And he did a piece in there. I don't remember what it's called, but um, he puts a bass clarinet mouthpiece on his euphonium. And so you only because of the the acoustics of it, you really only get the low fundamental. Might have but seen because that. because of all the reverb, the music becomes the overtones that change over it. And I figured out how he got the bass clarinet mouthpiece onto the horn. So I want to use that effect because I think having that kind of a sound that's just like so out of this world, nobody's imagined a soloist doing something like that would be something really, really special. Well, think about how who is it? Sergio has changed the shape. Is it Sergio? Yes. Yeah. That has that saxophone looking too. Oh no, that's Roland. Roland has the well, saxophone yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, one of those European guys. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but but even um Sergio yeah. does some very unique things too. I Sergio mean, Sergio plays that lucifone the it's a similar orientation where it's set up like a huge contrabass saxophone where it sits on the ground. Um, yeah. but it's made out of all those old King sousaphone parts. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Is that oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah Roland has one. Them, he, they Roland, both do something with different Roland's, shapes. Roland's is wacky. His is like, you hang the tuba from a neck strap and you can detach the lead pipe in such a way where the new apparatus like makes you hold like the tuba like a saxophone. Yeah. Or like a guitar or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I always said when we were on tour with the Sousa band years ago, we went into, um, we were in Iowa, we went to the Music Man's Museum. That's and then awesome. that museum you know, where all that stuff was, and there was, actually was a room with 76 trombones in the ceiling, but <laughs> there was another room that had a museum that had instruments and stuff like that, a lot of historical stuff. And there was these brass instruments that were shaped like saxophones. 
I can't think they were called Nerubophone. I can't remember the name of it, but they were mm -hmm. trumpets that were shaped like that. And, you know, and there were different sizes of them because of the craze of the yeah. saxophone when that was a real, because the shape of the yeah. saxophone. So they made some instruments like that. And I always thought that was interesting. So when I saw that Roland and, uh, and Sergio were making the different shapes, and even, I guess, I guess the first one to do that would have been uh, Jim Self to make the flute, yeah. the fluba, that yeah. giant like, trumpet shape. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there is more appeal, I think, when people think of, Kenny G with the long hair and the soprano sax. I mean, that got a yeah. lot of attention. And then here we are with our tuba looking oompa thing. You know, yeah. I, I, you know, I oystein early oystein Bodsvik was long mm. hair. Yeah. I mean, so I don't know. I, I wonder the different shapes, the different colors. I think now there are people that are they're trying more experiments, like what you're saying. But yeah. the shape of our instrument sometimes is our, is is kind of a maybe a, a association with baseline tuba stuff. Yeah, that's a really good point. One, I, I think this is a really interesting opportunity to bring up uh, a thought I had um, that this came out of reading your paper. Um, do you think it's actually kind of a problem that euphonium is defining itself as an instrument by comparing itself to other instruments rather than saying like this is a euphonium and this is what it does? And I don't mean to say that like I yeah, take yeah, beef no. with take beef with your paper by any stretch of the imagination. I just a thought I had was like okay if we're telling people that like euphonium is the cello of the windband, haven't we like distant? Haven't we already like by that point said we're not as important because we have to define our instrument by something else? Well, I mean, I think when I was doing that paper, it was pretty much looking to see what's happening with our role in the mm -hmm. wind band rep. And people voiced for decades called us the cello of the wind band because the cello has yeah. such a unique name. But the role we are now doing, and this was my paper was 10 or 11 years ago. The role we were doing at the time of my paper was we were getting kind of like third trombone parts or yeah. like a tenor tuba part that was up an octave. But there'd be pieces of music that had beautiful like moments that so could be the euphonium that it wasn't. Yeah. But is our is our real voice supposed to be the cello? Is it evolving? You know, is it evolving to yeah. be bass trombone and support? I don't know. I like the role where we have where we're we're doing the more melodic and the counterline kinds of things. But I also love yeah. having the anger bass lines. But I don't know. One of my favorite yeah. things El Elvel told me was she said that do you want to hire a euphonium player or do you want to hire Benta? Yeah. And like you mentioned earlier, when we were talking how she's gone, taking the euphonium in different ways, like her teacher, Yuka. Yeah. I don't know. I think our instrument is young. You know, it's super, it is super yeah. young. Yeah, that's, and that's the outlook I've tried to have recently. Um, like right after the Coast Guard Band audition, I got into kind of, the, and I think a lot of euphonium players do at some point, they, they get into this kind of funk of like, wow, I think euphonium stinks because like, like our music is getting boring. Like people don't write interesting stuff for us. Like I'm never going to get a gig, all of that kind of thing. When you know, I, I, when I was talking with Hiram at uh, Midwest this year, one of the things that um, we talked about is like, you know, Euphonium has only been around like 150, 170 years in the grand scheme of things. We're in on the ground floor. So let's go. Let's, if we can go really nuts with it, We'll set up uh, future generations for a lot of really interesting stuff. And Lance and I talked about this last week. We've done a really good job, I think, of making sure that the euphonium has a very deep set of literature, but we don't have a very wide set of literature. And that's what I'm really interested in seeing. And this brings up another question I have, which do you think the current conservatory model encourages 
um, well, students in general, but euphonium students especially to experiment enough. Because I don't often, I, th I find that um, it's more often that you see people who think like pantomime is as good as it gets, then you find people who are interested in like trying to find something really new. I think we might be at the cusp of changing that, but I'm kind of upset at the idea that like pantomime is the Glengarry leads of euphonium music. Well, I mean, pantomime has a lot of really cool things. There's beautiful yeah. melodies. You can take, you can remember some of the stuff in there, the 10, eight feel, and there's different things from that, the pretty opening. And then Oh, there's for sure. that, but the piece that I think preceded that one would have be the Boccolari, you know, uh, Fantasia di Concerto, which is very pantomime like Yeah. in some ways, you know, the structure, you got the beautiful introduction, beautiful melodies, embellished obligato section. Then there's a, the, the Bolero or the 10, eight, you know, and then the heroic thing at the end. So, I mean, there's been sort of this template, you know, we got away from the theme of variations, which I love theme of variations. There needs to be a modern theme of variation. Maybe what your piece you write is a theme of variation and each The of the last variations. movement is the the last movement. Well, it loosely is a theme of variations because the the form of the piece is um, George Campbell's Hero's Journey. So it's not like a standard symphonic or concerto based form. But I wanted to like have a story form rather than a music form, and then each Yeah. movement of it is a different style and form. Actually, you're gonna love this piece because like um, one of the things I wanted to establish with it is like you need to know that the soloist can jam. So the third movement is all improvised, except Oh, perfect. with a, there's Like a it's couple common. of, People the, will bolt from that and they won't play it. So you better have a written out version they can play. no, I, what I'm going to say is uh, the reason they're not playing is because they can't. Is there a consortium <laughs> going on for your piece? Do you have a consortium going with it? no, I just wanted to write it. Do a consortium. I should. I'll donate. <laughs> cool. I'll buy We'll talk in. later. We'll talk later. All right. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, that'll you be know, fun. back to kind of the form and the different things you're talking about. I think that there is room for change. There are still the people that are going to be kind of kind of stuck in the mud with the old stuff. But it's time for people to move on. I mean, I really, I, I, when I was running the jazz band here, I, I wanted, I made my euphonium students play trombone in there, a lot of them, you know, because I wanted them to get into that. And then, you know, if there would have been any time, I think I soloed with the band a few times with euphonium like that, but Yeah. there needs to be more opportunities for our instruments because we don't get them in the orchestra very readily. We don't get them in the jazz band. It's not always in the Latin bands, but well, there's nothing Yeah. wrong with us being in those groups. Someone just needs to push for it to make it happen. You know, you just Yeah. got to be there. And um, our writers, I don't know that the writers are going to start writing. I mean, one of my students did a, a paper, a research about, you know, the role of the euphonium. We, we actually, uh, we called Mike Roy Lance and, you know, we actually texted Mike Roy
what I mean, the orchestras don't play new composed music like the wind band does. Yeah. You know, they it's don't. Um, is is uh, Steve Pearson somebody you've run across at all in your career? He's uh, the former director of bands at Illinois and at Ithaca. He was at Northwestern for a while so. too. Steve's no, really cool. So. He's the guy that I wrote this like big symphonic poem about the national parks for. And one of the things he said at a talk I was at with him um, earlier this year was, uh, especially as long as wind ensemble and music education are so tied together, band is the future. It's the future for composers. It's the future for instrumentalists. Yep. And it's to our advantage to lean into that. Well, that's what was when I was in this class for my doctorate, uh, it was like a about kind of like looking back in the old orchestration treatises and the old mm -hmm. practices, you know, how the concert halls back in the day weren't as big as they are now and the pianos yeah. were different. Well, what we learned in that class was that composers all dream to write for the symphony orchestra and, mm -hmm. and you want to write, you know, but no one will play it. Mm -hmm. People are still wanting to hear Brahms or wanting to still hear Mahler. They yeah. still want to hear the big hits, but the question was, how long is that going to be still happening as our audiences thin out? Like jazz music, like big band jazz is mm -hmm. going away, yeah. sadly, because those people are dying. But they, we discovered in that class that if you wanted your piece played, the band probably would do it. Yeah. But the orchestra, good luck. Yeah. Good luck. My yeah. school here, my university, they're playing Pines of Rome and all that. That's coming up, you know, but like, is there really, are they playing, programming something brand new? Yeah. Not necessarily. I should write a piece for orchestra and, and just see if they would do it yeah. and report back to you. You know, I mean, yeah, I'd be really interested. And but, you know, I mean, the thing is, you know, so it's it's hard. It's hard for them to break that mold. You know, they mm -hmm. talked about in that class about we talked how they're playing the museum pieces. Yeah. Yeah. The and museum pieces are other people of all the dead composers, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, one... and the band, I'm like, I want them to I want the band to play the older pieces, too. Mm -hmm. you know, like I don't think my students at my university are going to get to ever play a Susan March at a concert or a Carl yeah. King March because they're yeah. playing all the new stuff. So there's to me, it's like in our school here, and I don't want to get in trouble with my director of bands. The top band really seeks the new stuff, yeah. And your second band plays all of the great euphonium parts. Yeah, and well, and one of the things. So the new director of bands here at Illinois is uh, um, Dr. Kevin Giraldi. He used to be at. Um, University of North Carolina Greensboro for a long time. And mm -hmm. one of the things I think he does really well is striking a balance between like the classic rep that the top end is playing and the new rep that the top end is playing. Like um, this year was, or last, 2022, I think was the centennial of uh, the premiere of Chester for band. So the top end played Chester at our concert. Cool. And I think, and like having like this like nice historic moment it's a classic piece of band repertoire it tied into some other elements of the concert but one of the things that he mentioned was like you know like we want to have like people think about like when they think about the recording of chester they want us i want people to think of university of illinois recording of chester as like this is this is the the recording or like this is that we said something with this piece and not only can we yeah. do all of the wacky contemporary stuff, like we play the crap out of band standards too. I thought that well, was really, really important. With my, my band staff, but I wish yeah. that the, the second band would play maybe something brand new. Maybe yeah. they have, maybe I'm not paying attention, but I just, I feel like 
it's what we want as composers is we want our music played. So yeah. I'm so torn because the, the composer side of me is like, yes, the band's playing all this new music. But then the euphonium side of me is like, oh no, the role of the euphonium is wrong. There's no good parts to practice. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens in our top band is that, you know, the parts aren't nearly as hip at all as the second yeah. band's parts. But they are playing the new music, which I think is wonderful. I think that's great. But yeah. I just wish there was a little bit of a mix. Yeah, I, I guess the, the thing that I think about, and I was thinking about this while I was reading your paper too, is like, um, I, it's a little helpful for me to not have as complex music in Wind Symphony all the time, just because it gives me a little more time to really stretch myself in my solo repertoire. Like, I haven't played an original euphonium piece that I didn't write in a long time. I'm doing all transcriptions right now, like of wacky Dutch saxophone music and like like R&B charts and like really kind of experimental and really trying to stretch my artistry as a musician. That's not to say that I don't want like more interesting parts sometimes in the wind ensemble literature. But as a composer, I think that like being able to write interdimensionally for all of the instruments is like really to the advantage. I don't think, um, I don't think it's, I don't know if like, we're going to get like Susie euphonium parts all of the time anymore. Um, not to, that's not to say that we shouldn't have some of them. <laughs> like we should get it at least gonna, some. Yeah, we're not going to see that yeah. again. I don't think. I don't think it's so either. The, well, it's not in the orchestration book, so they don't know yeah. to do it. And yeah. um, I think the further and further we get away from you know Rangers writing and like earlier I was talking, it's Mayhew Lake, not Matt. Yeah. It's Mayhew Lake, and then Claude Smith those people's writing yeah. notes really had like all those great parts. You know, I don't know. I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're going to come back to that or not, but everything, I don't know, bell bottom pants has come back. Right. Yeah. So who knows? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And like that, and that's the thing I was, um, I was thinking about like in trying to come up with a good way of outlining what the euphonium is good at in a document for composers. I think being able to line item roles it can have right away is really helpful. And if we're going to... Well, there like, should be, you know, the role should be discussed, arranged, yeah. the ability to... Oh, absolutely. Blend. But like... There should be the extended techniques that we can do. What was the yeah. piece that Misa Mead just played with the uh, army band, which was really cool? Popping the mouthpiece and smacking the horn. Yeah, I haven't seen it find that. Find that it's I will. very, very good. Yeah, and I do. She, I'd like to do a lot of stuff like that with the improvised ensemble. Percussive things on her instrument while the orchestra was playing. Yeah, and well, it the, was fantastic. The thing I was thinking about already that you brought up earlier is formatting everything like the orchestration textbook, so it's something they're used to seeing. And so the idea is like they get it and they're like, "Did this chapter fall out of my book? How have I not seen this?" <laughs> well, I mean, this is the thing I'm kicking myself as we're talking. I'm like. You know, why don't we have the, have on, I mean, I used to have a website. I got, I couldn't keep up with it and it was just nothing new, nothing new, nothing new. So I let it go. Yeah. But having a website, when someone did a Google search on scoring for the phone, it would pull out a great handout that we had. Yeah. You know, like, you know how the teacher doesn't always use yeah. the book. They have the course packet. We yeah. need a course packet that's available all over everywhere for someone to find. Yeah, so that was right for us again. That was really the idea for this project is like the course packet's going to be everywhere. And then I'm going to film the lecture recital that goes with it at the end of the semester. So that like, yeah. um, and then it's linked so that they can go to YouTube and there's a 45 minute to an hour and a half lecture that explains everything in the packet with live excerpts played from it. Good. So they can see like a practical multimedia 
um, application of it. And then, and this goes back to something else I was thinking about. It's like, I think um, as far as like comparing the instrument to another um, instrument in the wind ensemble, so it's a little more in the medium, I think euphonium has a lot more in common with saxophone than it does with tuba, which is really kind of funny. Yeah. And I think a lot, yeah. the, the thing, Ryan Robinson brought this up um, when I was having a chat with him one time, is that if you look at the patents for the old um, European baritones, especially the rotary baritones, and uh, the old uh, baritone sax horns, the modern compensating euphonium is very close to the sax horn, much yeah. more so than the old rotary baritones. So the fact that like it's brass and saxophone-ish makes a little more sense for this like kind of can play these super vibrant solos that cut through the whole band when they're not doubled in anything else, but kind of blend with everything else too. That the saxophone is also really, really good at. The interesting thing about euphonium, especially if you have a player who's a savage, is you kind of get tenor, berry, and bass sax in one instrument. Yeah. Which is really cool. <laughs> my favorite big man, my favorite jazz chart of all time was Super Bowl meets the bad man. And you know, Maynard's playing the Super Bowl and it's the berry sax. Yeah. And it's that piece. And I, I agree. You know, the berry sax, the saxophone, I mean, there, the saxophone is really sort of like you said. It's it's very conical and it's very similar yeah. in the shape of it. It's just got holes yeah. and it's got a reed. You know where our instrument, you know, has the cup mouthpiece and the valve. Yeah. So I mean, they're very similar, just different shapes. Yeah, and, and I like that saxophone shaped horn. Yeah, I kind of do too. Yeah. But the, I think the part of the reason saxophone hasn't suffered in the same way as euphonium is that writing for saxophone and writing for clarinet is so similar. The saxophone is just louder and yeah, has a bit yeah. of a different I mean, timbre. Like if you can write well, for clarinet, you can reasonably write for saxophone. Well, there's the the iconic shape too, though. I mean, you could yeah. think about Kenny G was a saxophone player. I mean, Boots was it? What's that guy? Boots, whatever. That was the famous country yakety sax guy. I mean, the saxophone has been more of a visual thing. Like you, you know, when do you find a? There are commercials now that has euphonium on it, though. I will say. And it's always it's really awesome. bad. They walk past the euphonium's walking past the cellist that's doing yeah. the that's that's doing the um, busking, and they're broken. The euphonium players going to the real gig, and then it's that little horn, and it's like a rock band. I mean, it's bad, yeah. but I mean, you are seeing our instrument more in car commercials because it's big, you know. Yeah. But it hasn't been really visible. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, we look, and I've always wondered like our method books are really weird too. Yeah. I mean, if you think about, I've studied bass for a while, some years ago, and the bass books was so different, so more engaging with color, with pictures, with people that look cool. Yeah. If you look at in the very beginning euphonium book, there's someone that's sitting there and they look like they're they they getting ready to, I don't know, go to the bathroom or something. Yeah, that like know? stone etching of Simone Mantia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just saying, it, there's nothing. In, well, there's no history. There's no pictures of like famous like Rufus Reed or whatever. I mean, I'm just saying there's those, yeah. they have a lot of history just in the very beginning of their book yeah. and it's cool looking and that, you know, they're learning, they're not learning the B flat scale. They're learning like yeah. some kind of a lick that's made so, out of the B flat scale. So, you know? so what I'm hearing is like, we need to get people rich Madison on day one. <laughs> well, I mean, think of, I've always wanted to write a, a beginning method book because, you know, I taught a lot of beginners for many years yeah. in Orlando and, you know, in our books, they're they're really kind of no one wants to look in it. I mean, yeah, I, well, you I know, feel like if it was in color, 
and there was like pictures and you saw a picture yeah. of you know, an African-American player in there. You saw an Asian person, you saw tall people, little people, yeah. and you could find someone in that yeah. picture from the very beginning that that could be me versus it just being this one thing. Yeah. You know, and then the, the instrument that shows the parts is stupid looking. They should have yeah. like an eagle on it or have flames on the bell. And yeah. Just, you know, yeah. I you think know, you... something so it looked cool. It was red. You know, yeah. I, the, drawing. the the brass gym comes to mind. I love all of the photos in that book. Like it, it, they were so unapologetically yeah. like goofy, but like cool. And the thing I love so much about the brass gym, and I think part of it is because it's kind of written for older musicians, but like uh, uh, an issue I have with method, method books and honestly young band music across the board is it kind of talks down to the intelligence of kids. Cause, well, this is um, the thing, what happens with the method books, everyone's equal. Yeah, everyone's playing the same stuff. And then that first song Regal March, mm -hmm. you know, or whatever the first like the the, the sheet yeah. music, and then we don't have anything. You know, I did a clinic at Midwest some years ago. And I talked about the role of euphonium and how to try to make euphonium players, you know, how to get euphonium players to want to be in your band and how for them to love it. And mm -hmm. I just basically I put up a piece of music on the screen. It was called sliding the scale. And it was supposed to be about the B flat scale. And you know, and you know the scale in the song, but the tuba euphoniums never once got to play the scale. All he goes, bum, 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 and the band was going, ba, da, 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 and they're going, ba, ya, ya. But all the euphoniums did the whole song was just the roots and the fifths or the fourths. Never got to play the scale. Why are we? Why are we so dumb that we can't play the scale ever? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really frustrating. And so who I mean, wants I would practice that music. I would take. I would take no it one. even a step. I would take it even a step farther. I think that like the idea that a method book wants to look at a student and says you're only good enough to play the first fifth of the B flat scale on your first day of playing the instrument. When in reality, like the idea that we don't teach at least a chromatic fifth first is atrocious. Cause like, well, why are we starting out with B flat? We should start out with the key of C, but in a more yeah. band method, you can't because yeah. of the different instruments. So I see that. Yeah. Well, I, but I mean, like even being able, being able to use all of the buttons right away, I think tells a student like, oh, well, this isn't like using weird fingerings. Like nothing's weird anymore. We learned all of the fingerings on the first day. Like, yeah, you have to learn seven notes, but it's seven notes. Like that's not that many. And then. I don't think it's very difficult then to say like, okay, well, because we've taught them the chromatic scale, let's ditch the key signatures for a little bit. And that's not to say like key signatures are bad. This is, it's, it's not that we're eliminating them from the curriculum. I think they just need to be in a different position because one of the things I found is if I give a piece without a key signature and write in all the accidentals, I can get eighth graders to play in B major, no problem. No problem. And, but, and so I found that like, I think they need a little more time seeing the patterns before they know to look at a key. Like, I think a key signature is a memory problem more it is more than it is a literacy problem. And well, once you've I, logged I, enough hours seeing those patterns, you toss it into the curriculum and they're like, oh, I know these patterns. I see them all the time. I feel a little bit the opposite of you, but I'm, I'm always open. Yeah. See, I've, I haven't taught, again, like started beginner from scratch. Yeah. In those books, it starts out where there's no key signature. Mm -hmm. And then they give you the B flat from the very first note, right? You have mm -hmm. your E flat and it's always written in. And then yeah. at some point they throw the key signature in there, but there's not any warnings. 
And so people don't want, so they, they learn that all those notes are always, if the B that no longer has a flat in it is always yeah. open. So yeah. then when you have a key that has a B natural in it, they can't fathom because yeah. they've never seen a B natural. So I yeah. feel like if there was a key signature from the start mm -hmm. or, you know, or if they taught everything in yeah. C and then introduce it, but yeah, I, I don't well, know. That's, that's kind of my thought. They won't play E naturals. They won't play, they won't play yeah. A naturals because those always had the flat before and then now it's gone, yeah. but it's still that. They, yeah. When they introduce a key signature, I think it should be a trap then yeah. that would make them almost like here's one and here's a key that doesn't have it. Yeah. So remember you have to check because they yeah. don't have to check and it's still I always mean, open. I think even like being able to introduce key signatures as a concept where like you have a really wild key signature. I don't remember which piece it is. There's a piece of Roland's that's in G or yeah, G harmonic minor. And the he just wrote that F sharp in the key signature. So the key signature is B flat E flat F sharp. And I know a lot of people who would look at that and be like, oh, well, what am I supposed to do? This is so crazy. But like, if you know your harmonic minor scale, it's, you look at it and you go, oh, the key's G harmonic minor. That's pretty cool. And then you read the chart. Cool. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. So I think being able to, I think you could teach key as an education concept that way. And the, the idea is like, if the foundation is the chromatic scale, you're looking for accidentals all the time. And once you've established that some of these patterns happen a lot, then that's the way you teach key signatures. It's like, well, look at this B flat scale. You've seen this pattern a lot. Well, the tradition is when this pattern is going to happen a lot, we write it at the beginning so we could save ink. How about this? We don't introduce key like you're saying, mm -hmm. and we introduce B natural into there, where we show them yeah. the natural for the Bs, and yeah. we show the E naturals, and then we introduce keys, and some are going to be flats and some are not, and because it's the yeah. darndest that's, thing to that's, get and those that's, young kids to play anything second position or second yeah. bow, yeah. and not everything is not first. You know? Yeah, actually, <laughs> and that's and that's exactly my thought. Like, I would go so far as to say, like. I almost think key signatures should be introduced in like eighth grade rather than sixth or seventh grade. And you go from like an atonal, everything has accidentals, like fully chromatic scale from day one. And maybe and we reduce it to like, check. yeah. And then you really I have this that. idea. And, and the idea is like, it's actually really empowering. And the thesis is that like, it's not a technical issue. It's a memory issue. I can see that. Because like, I mean, when you think about like things that people miss most when they're sight reading, key signatures and repeat signs primarily. Yeah. 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 And so like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's fair to kids to argue that it's a literacy problem. I think it's way yeah. more fair to all musicians to say it's a memory problem. <laughs> well, I compose all the sight readings when we do band auditions and stuff yeah. like that. And I have for years and I know that any, I, and I'll, if I was writing a sight reading for right now today, I would just ba 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 beep, ba ba ba, whatever it'd be in my head. Yeah whatever key it was and then i would just it's like only three short like four bar things and yeah. then it goes to a lyrical one and there's three key changes the stuff they miss the most are ties mm -hmm. like a half note tied to a quarter note they don't count that very well rests mm -hmm. um tempo changes like they don't when they see it's visual like if they see if it's supposed to be um adagio but it's in 12 8 they see all the triplet looking things and they want to go fast yeah. instead of da 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 dee da da dee dee da they think da 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 
So like they're not noticing, because I think if it makes sense, like if you see music really spread out, then it looks like it's slow. Yeah. If it's tight and it's got, you know what I mean? So I feel yeah. like I've tried it, like for a long time, the sight reading was a regular uh, portrait way. Yeah. And then sometimes I would have just one line would have, you know, like one line would be each one of those. Well, then I switched it now to the landscape yeah. and it seems to be a little more successful for the slow one because it's spread out more. Yeah. I've tried things with my sight rating just to see. Yeah, that's really cool. Was. I think and that's really I cool. One of the bars, it was busy and I moved one of the measures down. So it was three, you know what I mean? So it was more spread out I to see if really that cool. made it better. Kind of. That's really cool. And well, and this actually gets to something I think a lot about. And I think this is one of the things about like a more orchestral pedagogy that I think has really helped me and that I wish more band composers got is that um, my teacher, Steve Taylor, always talks about how like because reading sessions are so cutthroat in the orchestral realm, everything needs to be perfect right away. And you need to the thing that composers should lose sleep over is how easily processable and readable is your music and i don't run I into agree. people i don't run into I enough totally people agree. who think about that and as easy as like one of the things that i'll do is i'll when i'm engraving parts i'll zoom out really far on the score and i'll like relax my eyes a ton so everything gets blurry and then i focus on like the distribution of the systems down the page and if it's not visually appealing or feel really easy to look at in that way i change it and it's, yeah. I mean, tiny things like that, like getting rid of Layout bad page turns, like being really feet. obvious. And like, um, I wrote this crazy piece for chamber orchestra last semester where like the climax of the, it's, so it's like these two thin, like dreamy textures. And then in the middle is like this Leonard Bernstein kind of dance that folds over itself until it breaks. And the point where it breaks, there's so many ideas going on at one time that it's supposed to like kind of be sensory overload and the arrival of that section is a 24 against 11 against seven against four and it's voiced um brass as one of the patterns piano as one of the patterns string as one of the patterns but then split so that like the low strings because they're so much lower than the brass and the violins are and the violas are so much higher than the brass that you can really hear the difference in the texture and then um percussion as the other pattern so because of the unique mm -hmm. timbre the patterns come through orchestrationally and it's actually kind of effective. But the thing that my teacher and I talked about so much is, okay, so you have all these ideas happening. How can you make it so easily legible that there's no question about whether this moment will be successful? And because originally, like in order to have the pattern happen, I needed to have some kind of wacky metric modulation. What we wound up doing instead was keeping the tempo the same and um, going to like three, two, instead of keeping a six, eight feel. And then having the feel of the piece, like the role of the pulse just change instrument groups. And so all cool. I had to put in was um, like a little note in each of the parts that said like, listen to the cellos and basses for the pulse, because that's how it will change. And then read everything else as normal. And that it was really interesting being able to like, mesh this together in such a way and it created like a really intense effect in the piece that sounds great why well, when i teach composition to some of my students here and there i think the layout is more important than the notes because especially yes. if you're a young composer if it doesn't look interesting like sometimes people just put term like legato 
-hmm. and you just see a bunch of notes. But if we see mm -hmm. slurs and you see like our articulations, yeah. it seems more thought was put into it yeah. than just the term. And then the page, the systems, like you're saying, how many of those are on there? How crammed is it? Mm -hmm. Is it spelled wrong? Is it like B flat, D flat? you know, E flat. And then all of a sudden, is there like a G sharp or something, you know, like, yeah, to me, I, I've taken people's music, and I won't mention the composers, mm -hmm. and put the whole dang thing in finale and made another one. So it's spelled right, because yeah. I, I find myself tripping up on stuff because it's got, maybe, you know, like a B flat to C sharp, yeah. to E flat to E to, you know, G, and it's like, it's like, just make it so it looks like it's a third. B flat to D yeah. flat looks so we, much better than B flat to C sharp. Yeah, we read a chart with and the, I read through that like no problem. Mm -hmm. But if it's got all the weird spellings in it, you know, Franz Tuboka, I mean, rest in peace, but his music was so hard yeah. because it was it was just spelled very weird, like this yeah. intervals. It was a second, but it looked like a third, you know what I mean? Or it was yeah. like, you know, and, so and I don't it, know. I just feel like I had to go back through and put it all in there. And then sometimes yeah. it's because the page break is so bad. Or it's yeah. so many pages, I can condense it and make it so I don't have to manage, you know, put, you know, it's not easy to turn yeah. pages if you're playing. Yeah, if I if I commission a piece by a composer and it's got double sharps in it, I send it back immediately and I say, like, I don't have time to think about this. Like, it has to be changed. Like, that's, well, that's, yeah, that's excess. Then... Like, because having, having, asking the human brain to make two calculations for one note is, like, actually a waste of time. I agree. It's, I agree. it's actually yeah, a waste right. of time. And well, then if people especially when you could awkward. especially when you could just write it differently or like don't put a key signature on the page it will sound well, it will, actually rule? it will probably sound better <laughs> well what's and, the rule i mean i just feel like i break the rule i know for an ikea flats and if mm -hmm. i put a sharp in there but you know what i mean we're playing b flat and we're going to d and then i want if i put f sharp that makes more sense yeah because that you know if, if i'm going you know i mean yeah it, i don't know i mean but i go through each part before when i'm writing something and I kind yeah. of finger through it. And if it makes me look back at the key signature, I put the courtesy accidental in there. Yeah. If it makes me wonder what it is, I'll respell it. Hit number nine, shift nine, yeah. you know, switch it. But totally. here, I think that the layout is important. I think that is it something that the composed that the players are going to want to play? Is it's extremely difficult? Yes. You know, I worked on a piece last year by a composer that about pushed me over the edge and Gail's never wanting to jump out the window, but it was so hard. Yeah. It, I put so many hours into that and it was so hard that it was like guaranteed there was no way I was ever going to play it perfect because it was that hard. Yeah. And I put more hours and hours and hours into that. And when I performed it, it was like, it was just like rolling dice, you know, yeah. is it going to go great? Is it not? Even though I knew it, I mean, I put that in finale, I made a better part layout of it. And I made a, a play along track with cowbells because the meter changed so much. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was trying everything I could to try to learn this piece. And it was, it just, it was so much effort that went into it. By the time I got on the stage and I didn't play so well, I couldn't be mad because I had put so many hours in it. Yeah. It made me wonder, did I put too much time into it? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and if you're willing to spend that much time on the piece, like you'd want the piece to be really, really good. And that's I the frustrating, and that's, great. yeah, and that's the frustrating part is like, I, so I, I spent seven weeks this semester, or this last semester working on, um, do you know the piece Grab It? It's for tenor saxophone and electronics. It's by this Dutch sax, well, he's not a saxophone composer. Um, he writes a lot of saxophone music though. His name is Jakob Terveldwies. You got to look this guy up. It's so cool. This piece is written in like 1999 and it's like one of the oh, most. Grab It. Grab it. 
yeah, the recording to listen to, it, it's pretty easy to find on like YouTube or Spotify. Um, Arno Bornkamp is the soloist. That's the guy who's written for it. He's like one of the best saxophonists in the world. Um, and this piece like has won like tons of awards. It's considered like one of the seminal pieces of the tenor sax repertoire. And it was written in 1999. Like it's not even that old. Um, oh, cool. And it's like, it's in the really early days of like cool new pieces with electronics. I know of two euphonium players who have ever played it. Uh, I saw Irving Ray play it at the iTech in 2019. And then I played it on my recital uh, earlier this year. It's nuts. Irving Ray was the euphonium player that was in the group with my student from here. Oh, nice. Yeah. We were talking earlier. Yeah, he was in the Marine, the Marine Band group. Awesome. There too. That's nuts. Yeah, Irving's a, Irving's a really good player. I love all of the electro acoustic stuff he's doing. It's um, it's yeah. really given me a new idea of like how far we can take the euphonium and electronics medium, which was really fun. Uh, so yeah, I mean, but Grab It was one of those pieces where I was working on it like an hour and a half, two hours a day, doing super slow study, trying to play with a recording of Arno Bornkamp playing it, trying to um, play with something like a metronome, especially with all of these wacky meter changes. And then like having a piece where you have to set up four music stands because it's 12 pages and there's no rest to be able that. to That's do a page fun. turn. It's not fun. It's a heck of a show for the audience though. Like I've, I've yeah, stage. like you like yeah. wiggle your way across the stage a little bit, and because the piece is really hip hoppy, it's got it's gritty and it's got drive and um, uh, uh Tervelois really likes to use speech patterns in his music, and all of the samples for Grabba are sampled from the documentary Scared Straight. And it's about how like all of these high security prisoners like threw away their lives, like with whatever got them there and how like you can't just let your life slide by you. You have to grab it by the scruff of the neck. And it's this really, really intense piece of music. It's like nine oh, minutes. Oh, wow. But it's like that was one of the pieces where um, like put it on the recital and afterwards everybody was like, whoa, man, that was nuts. And it felt so good. Especially because it's like, I mean, the piece is so out there, even though it's pretty listenable, like I would go like a lot of stuff in it out. is really constant. And like, it, I mean, there's moments for extended technique. It's just nuts. It, it's so cool. And I'll he's, he's done out. arrangements for a lot of instrumentations. Um, there's Mark a saxophone professor plays a lot of cool music. I'll have to ask him about it. If he's played that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wacky. He's done a lot of really cool stuff. He has, um, uh a billy joel no billy holiday song um a song that like samples all this billy holiday stuff and it's really cool um he has another one that's for piano and electronics uh called body of your dreams that samples like 80s workout videos like it's really wacky stuff like that but the all the music is really cool i'm gonna look him up um what do you like to play when you don't have something to practice for? I like to play by ear. And um, every day I, when I get to school and I take my horn out, the first thing comes out of my instrument is whatever I'm thinking that I don't even know I'm thinking. And then mm. I'll play whatever that is. And it's know me, you know, a couple bars or whatever. And then I play it a half step lower, half step lower. And I challenge my ear and I, if I, if I got out a book that had Remington warm-ups and stuff like that in there, super doesn't, Gail doesn't want to do that. And I won't do it because it's too pattern and too boring to me, but I can make up a Remington-like thing that I create on the spot 
yeah. and then I put it in all their keys and then I'm fine with that. He said he had to go sit down and warm up with Remington warm up, so I would not want to do it. But you can go in there and you can play whatever you want and you can make up a Remington style thing. I would, you know, if I'm not working on that, then know me. It's, you know, once I've warmed up, it's, I love playing all the Abersol things, all the, the standards. I like it. You know, I put on the play along tracks. I do some of that for fun. Pick a jazz piece I don't know and just try to improvise over changes I have never heard before. So it make it it kind of makes I like working I guess on my ear as much as I do on the face and the fingers, you yeah. know. And then know me, it's I don't know. It's, it's it seems like I always have something I have to be working on. I don't yeah. hardly have any times in my life where I don't have something I've got coming up. If that makes sense. Yeah. As soon as I get done with my faculty recital next week, then I've got to start working on some stuff. I'm recording with Deanna Saboda, you know, in a couple of weeks from that. Yeah. And then from there, then I've got some. You know, it's like there, it's sort of like there's um a checklist of things that are coming up oh, if i had sure. nothing 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 going on i don't know what i would do i it's hard to say yeah i probably would compose stuff maybe yeah. start writing things i don't know well and i imagine like the jazz jam and like playing jazz standards a lot as probably like one of the more underrated ways to practice because you have to stretch like your listening and your musicality so much and then like, I mean, yeah, you like, especially if you're sight reading jazz standards, like you read the page for a second, but then like the point is that you get off of it. And I think this Well, you brings... put that play along track on and you sight read right with it. That, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Because you, you, you have to, you have to, yeah, and you have to listen and like fit inside the sound of the ensemble. I think that's a, a really underrated way to practice. And quite frankly, something a lot of euphonium players go forward to do. Because I think what a lot of people get stuck in is this idea of like, well, we were talking about this earlier, the perfectionism and like the tendency to over practice because we're so stuck in this, like what's on the page has to be perfect. Yeah. And like, if the fundamentals are perfect and you listen well, people won't know that you've made mistakes or if they do. And Lance and I talked about this last week, the idea of like, if, if your mistakes are so beautiful and so musical, like, who will care? Yes. I mean, I think about like, there's, I don't remember which recording of Demandre it is. There's a recording of Demandre playing some crazy piece like he always does. And he like, only if you listen to it a trillion times and look at the score, can you tell that he biffs one of the notes, but it's like, it's so good that I'm like, I don't even care, man. Yes. I wish I could biff notes like that. Are you kidding? <laughs> so I went to a wedding years ago of some friends from Disney and uh it was like a disaster wedding you could ever imagine it was downpour raining you know up pulls up the the limousine with the the bride to get out and they and like instead of pulling right next to the curb it's like a big old gap she had pretty much had to step in a puddle but while we were waiting on the bride who was late there was a pianist that was playing pieces while we sat there and it might have been like stuff from beauty and the beast or stuff you know famous popular things but this guy would play a wrong note but then he'd do that wrong note again, so you thought he did it on purpose. Yeah. Like it might be da da dee da 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 ya da da dee ya da, and he would do that note yeah. again. Yeah. And so I've learned that even when I, mean, I told you earlier, I play out the, at the bar across the river here yeah. at the Toadstool Bucks. I would throw down bass lines there, and if I played a wrong note on the bass line, I'd play it again. So yeah. if anyone was listening, they'd think, "Oh, she did that on purpose." Yeah, but, you know, it, that can be really powerful. Note, yeah, I mean, you gotta if you make a mistake. I mean, it's only human, you know. Yeah. I mean, there I, we know of a lot of recordings out there by our favorites that have wrong notes, yeah. wrong things in it. And you know what? It's okay. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, I think that 
too many people get focused on like the perfection of music. And I think that actually dehumanizes it a lot. And this is part of the issue I have with, um, I mean, being in the composition field a little bit. Um, I know so many people who are so concerned about their music being perfect. It's like the experiment of live music is that it's not going to be, but how special can the performance be in its imperfection? I think that's extraordinarily underrated. Yes. Well, anytime you're studying a piece of music, if you find the regular CD of it, fine. That They probably went back. I know there was something we recorded and I couldn't make the phrase. So the guy goes, oh, just play it here. And then yeah. now start here. And then they've patched it. So it's a beautiful yeah. phrase now. Best way to study is the live performance. Yeah. Where are they breathing at the live performance versus what yeah. did they what did they edit in on the CD? Do you think I mean, there's that classic, the rumor about Wynton Marsalis's you know, perpetual, mo you know, the, the yeah. one long phrase that he's supposed to do. Apparently that didn't happen that way in the recording session. But, you know, I'm not trying to, he's a fantastic oh, yeah. musician. But, I got to I see mean, Wynton two weeks ago. He, the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra was here. They're on tour right now with, um, oh shoot, I'm going to forget his name. Like he's like the, the best oud player ever. And so um, uh, Nasir Shamat is his name. Um, uh, and like the the way they're doing this uh the show is the concert series is called middle eastern meditations and it's all of these middle eastern folk tunes um in like the middle eastern improvised style arranged for big band and it's the lincoln or the kennedy center um or lincoln center jazz orchestra and um Na nasir is playing oud instead of them having their rhythm guitarist and it is cool. an incredible show. Wow, I'd love to see that. It's well, really I special. My other paper, my other paper I did was on Juan Tizal in the Duke Ellington Orchestra. Because you know, I, I studied, uh, I took a jazz history class, and it talks about you know sort of like the influences of the Cuban and Puerto Rican yeah. influence and stuff like that, and you know Juan Tizal and all that. But a lot of our jazz band rep has really gone different routes too. You know, yeah. I mean, like when I was running the jazz band here. You know, we did a dance, so we played a lot of standards for part of the year, and then we did some of the, you know, good, good, you know, the uh, Goodwin, you know, Gordon Goodwin pieces. We did a lot of those yeah. more newer composed pieces, but you know, that that's sort of got a cookie coder mold too with instrumentation. So yeah. it's cool when they're not using the rhythm guitar and they use a sitar or they use something yeah. different. You know, I like having, you know, the you know the upright bass. I like having an electric bass. Yeah. I like having a stick bass. When, you know, it should be what a so what a great opportunity to talk about like how important it is for our art to be multicultural, especially as we're yeah. becoming more of a global community now. I was having a conversation with one of my professors about this um, earlier this semester. I was saying like, you know, it's really kind of interesting, but like we've gotten so connected to the rest of the world with the internet that like my generation of musicians, I think will bring an idea of international art that we have we have no comprehension for right now because we're a generation that thinks of ourselves as global citizens first which is kind of cool yeah well the problem i find with the internet now with our students that are using the internet to learn and study mm -hmm. is that if there's someone like and if you think just in the tube and euphonium world yeah. think about connie weldon there's no videos of her playing there's no yeah. videos of not a whole lot of live videos of someone like Earl Louder, Harold Brash, you know, Art Lame and all them. You can't find any videos of these people, so they don't know about them. 
they know yeah. all the current stuff. Our students are more in the current what's going on now, but not yeah. our past. Because if you only use the internet for that, then it stopped. It only starts at a certain year. And then you got guys like Dave Weird, and of course, who has found reels or has recordings. And so he's been uploading some stuff that yeah. helps us in the To Be Funny world. But my studio class now this semester, we've done this project I've always wanted to do. I did it once and then people poo pooed it. And I brought it back is where I assign every kid a different tuba player or a different euphonium player. And they have seven or eight minutes to present that person to the class. And they do something awesome. on there. And it's been super eye opening because they don't know. I've, I've picked. Ray Draper, no one who knew who Ray Draper was. And my kid that introduced him found out things about Ray Draper I didn't even know because yeah. they can find that on the internet if you look. You know, yeah. Ray Draper was a guy that played tuba with John Coltrane. That's awesome. You know, it, and it's something yeah. that they would never know. They didn't know who Howard Johnson yeah. was. That's really sad, but they know yeah. now. When, Sometimes when the, they don't know who, like, I don't want to sound bad. They won't even know who Darren Parentoni is. That's really yeah. dumb. <laughs> because he's not all over YouTube like you would think, you know, Oisin yeah. and, you know, Roland and those guys are. But yeah. it's got to be something where if we're not teaching the music history yeah. of our of our players well, ourselves, if I'm not doing it, they're not going to learn that music history class. Yeah, I mean, like, I would imagine that within the next 10 years or so, you'd probably run into a lot of young euphonium players who don't know Brian Bowman, which is a travesty. And Sad. Then, yeah, and then, which it was just an absolute travesty. And then... Um, I mean, you probably run into a lot of tuba players, younger tuba players right now, who might not know who Fritz Kenzig is. Again, travesty. They don't know who Arnold Jacobs is. Yeah. Yeah, well, there was someone that presented Arnold Jacobs and did a dang good. They did Ray Draper. Yeah. I didn't know Ray Draper died of an overdrug, an overdrug, you know, drug overdose. I didn't know yeah. that. They found that out. I mean, there's been some really, really great, and I'm going to rotate. I'm going to make a list of who's been presented. And I'm yeah. going to make sure we find new people all the time. You yeah. know, I'm trying to find the old people now. Like Cora Youngblood, you know, Corsan. I mean, no one. She was our yeah. hero of the euphonium, but no one knows of her. She yeah, was probably I don't know, the Corey. first ever euphonium soloist and tuba soloist woman. But That's no, incredible. somehow or another, she was overlooked, you know. But yeah. her nephew, thank you, that her nephew has done all this research. And he's not even a euphonium player. Wow. James Gregory is doing all this stuff on yeah. Cora. And mm -hmm. man, it's amazing when you think about all the stuff that gets lost because it was that time where it was the women were the minorities or whatever, you know, yeah. there wasn't, you know, so then it gets brushed under. Like, have you ever wondered, weren't there black composers writing when Mozart was writing? Yeah. There had to have been. Yeah. You know, when I was in that jazz history class, I, it was a word I'd never thought of in that way was the, tan the jazz canon, you know, the yeah. canon. You know, yeah. what's going on with our canon? The canon's being rocked right now. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, I think that's good. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And well, I think the, 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 balance, the balance that I think needs to be struck is we like a diversity in the canon that understands the medium. And that's not to say that there are composers that don't understand the medium in a majority right now. It's just that, like, I find that... Um, having the balance of having a deep understanding of like what the ensemble, like a wind ensemble is really, really good at and how to get effects out of it. And that's very different than saying like, um, than necessarily glorifying some of the uh, people of ill repute of the past. Wagner comes to mind when I bring that up. And one of the things that I've always appreciated studying about Wagner, even if I find him to be a very contentious person, is that 
he really knew how to get effects out of an orchestra. And so being able to analyze that in the class and have the conversation about like, okay, obviously a lot of his views about um, Jewish people are extraordinarily problematic. But yeah, why is he so good? Like what decisions did he make with Elsa's procession to the cathedral that make it such an effective piece of music? And what can we learn from this so that we can continue to make art of this quality while also being able to talk about the importance of uh, acceptance of all people. I think that's a very, very efficient yeah. way to teach and a very important way to teach. Well, brushing stuff under the carpet and hiding things because it wasn't accepted back then as a problem. Yeah. But think about the beauty of the piece Bolero. Yes. And that's really one melody that goes forever and ever and ever, but how that transformed and grew, Yes. you know, and based on how it traveled around the orchestra. I mean, that's, fascinating it's really one melody that just continues over and that there's there's a a youtube channel i think you'd really enjoy it's called listening in it's a guy who does um he's a composer primarily but he does music theory and musicology analyses of famous pieces um two of my favorite videos that he's done um uh there's one about how some wood painting, Hokusai wood paintings that Debussy encountered when he was studying in Rome informed um, his composition practices for La Mer and why the gray wave at Kanagawa, which is a Hokusai wood panel he probably found there, is the cover of that piece and is the original oh, cover cool. art of that piece. Another, there's another one on Bolero. And the really interesting thing about Bolero is the neurodegenerative condition that Ravel developed as he was aging um, causes the human brain to hear like really impetuous symmetry. And that piece is actually was written at a time where it was getting incredibly severe for him. And so it's really kind of a time capsule of what exactly was going on in his mind when he was experiencing that. And I think that that's so interesting. Has he done any videos on like what was happening when Beethoven was getting deaf? I don't know. Um, yeah, I need to look into look that. At. I think it'd be so, I, I'd really be interested to hear some of that. Well, I was reading an article or something somewhere recently about someone that's doing research on all of the stuff that's false. You know, mm. like, you know how they, like, I guess if you think about like, I guess Tchaikovsky being gay or whatever is how it's just barely mentioned, yeah. but like it, it was like kind of brushed under people yeah. want to celebrate the music, but not who he was. But there's, there's people now that are actually trying to go back and, and dispel all the, the, the stuff that was hidden or the stuff that was yeah. made up or covered over or whatever, you know, there's, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, there's, we were, we were, we're taught. And when we think about even in grade school, the history of what our history of American history, all that, what someone else has decided to teach, yes. you know, there's a lot of that argument now in the schools now, like they don't want people to start teaching about some of these other heroes because it's yeah. going to make, you know, Andrew Jackson or somebody else look like less of a hero, but there are yeah. more than one hero, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Why do we only study our presidents? What about the vice presidents? Yeah. Or, I'm just, I you mean, know what I mean, are the people there's, that, I don't know. I, one, one thing that comes to mind is there, I, th I think it's the state of Oklahoma. There's, I don't remember who it is. There's a state in the U.S. that doesn't allow AP American history to be taught because they don't like how in some of the civil rights chapters, the way that um, Dr. Martin Luther King's life is framed and how America is the antagonist. 
and like the government or the oh, antagonist. Oh, I know there's a lot of that. It's yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King might have done more for the American citizen than almost anybody in the history of the country. And they don't want us to know it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's I know and that that same kind of stuff there has obviously happened in our music history because you know yes. when you think about the, the classical composers that we study the most, mm -hmm. you know darn well there was more. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, Absolutely. even when you think about the music that you know, music history only seems to go to a certain point. You know, and it goes to the, was it the, the you know, the, I can't think of the piece, all this stuff that's, what, Glass, was it? Yeah, Philip Glass, Steve Reich. Philip Glass, um, and then there, it stops uh, right Adams. around there, right? Yeah. And then there's the, the piece, Four Minutes or whatever, and then, then nothing Cage. happens. Cage. Just, you know, something yeah. in there, then it stops. And the, the, irony, the irony is like the innovations of John Cage aren't discussed. They talk about Four Minutes, 33 Seconds, which is- That's an it. And it's an important piece of music in defining that, like, we've reached an age where um, I think you could conceivably describe art music as sound that has been organized. And the organization of a piece like 433 is the sounds that happen in the concert hall during the piece are the music to stretch the boundary of, like, what do we conceive thoughts, as music? Your thoughts during that four minutes. Yes. And the, the and the journey that you go on in that time. But, like... I didn't learn about John Cage's um, chance-based operative music until like I bought a book of John Cage lectures and read them and heard about like yeah, why this are we only learning one little yeah character? this idea of like wouldn't it be really interesting if a form of a piece was decided by a coin flip so you flip a coin ten times the A section is heads, the B section is tails, you flip it 10 times, the results yeah. are the form of the piece. And then you have to decide whether B is going to be B or B prime, or A is going well, to I be A or A prime. I got infatuated with chance when I was in my doctorate yeah. and I wrote a piece that the beginning of this quintet I wrote is mm -hmm. all chance. Yeah. You know, eventually it comes together and it all like, the, the, you know, it's got like a box that has the, this is the melody, this is the rhythm and the part the trumpet plays. Yeah. This is the you know, and then how they enter. But there, there, you're right. There, it's very censored or filtered. Yeah. You know, I think our music history classes, and I don't want to sound bad, spends too much time on Gregorian chant and some of that old stuff. Some of the music yeah. that's you know in the churches and stuff like that, where I think that should be shut down a little bit, so we have more time yeah. to go further. Because how could you teach the whole music history even in you know in a year worth two yeah. semesters? But if you had a little less of this, yeah. you know, learning all that stuff that we're not really yeah. doing anything well, with. And I also think... that like ethnomusicology is condensed to a single class. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think I think That's it's wrong. difficult. I think it's difficult in a bachelor's degree to obviously fit in everything. I mean, realistically, if you wanted to have like really interdisciplinary musicians teaching in a school reasonably, I think you'd need six years. But like it's difficult to do at a university. Uh you're going to learn how to play the clarinet and the flute and the yeah. oboe and the saxophone in one yeah. semester, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's nuts. And so, like, I think having a more interdisciplinary way of looking at that, and I think you could use jazz as a really interesting way to tie the classical music canon to world music because in order to learn jazz really efficiently, um, my friend Mike always talked about this. He did his master's degree in jazz trumpet at Purchase, and he talked about how when you go to the the – like the master's seminar in jazz, you start by learning the slave music of like the, the slave folk music of Africans who are brought to the new world. 
and because that's that's the roots of jazz in as much as like the roots of band is the military tradition and like knowing susa and the roots of orchestral music is the church music of central europe and so if you i i'm of the opinion that if you want to have a really informed good uh composition style in these mediums like it's really important to know the roots and the development of it and the thing that really sealed this conviction for me when i took graduate orchestration last year um i had a professor who hadn't taught the class in a while and took a very unconventional approach to it that i think is genius but it's really only doable if you have a two levels of orchestration you have the one where um you talk about like here's clarinet here's the clarinet handout we're going to look at some excerpts for clarinet this is how clarinet works write a piece for clarinet great i think that class is super important but that's orchestration level one orchestration and arranging level two and reasonably i think you could do a band orchestration level two orchestra orchestration level two etc um we got a like day one we'd be given the piano reduction of a bach cantata and he'd say orchestrate this for an ensemble Bach would have had access to. Two weeks later, Mozart reduction. Orchestrate for this for an orchestra Mozart would have had access to. Brilliant. Fo followed by five lectures on how to write for natural horn. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, and then here's a Beethoven reduction. And, and maybe it's 18 measures. But that amount of exercise and thinking about what would they have had, had access to? Okay, I'm going to go well, listen to the recording. What are the idioms? What were their instruments what are, like? Yeah, and what what's this? How how are they pairing instruments together? Why is it so convenient to score triple wins in flute, oboe, clarinet in that triple octave split? Why? why are the winds doing so little why is the brasso not involved being able to talk about the technological limitations and see the evolution of it and then yeah, we the went to, and then we go to wagner and brahms and then we and unfortunately we were really only able to spend lots of time in central europe because like the nature of the class but when you're thinking about like the growth of the symphony orchestra that's a lot that's of way where to the, learn it yeah and so that's by the time and so by the time we're at the end, we've covered Debussy, Respighi, loads of contemporary people. We had a couple of classes on film music and using the orchestra differently. And the final was, okay, write an original piece for orchestra that's less than three minutes. And I so you- be in that, I wanna be in your classes with you. You've got great <laughs> classes. Yeah, yeah, they're really fun. <laughs> I'm really trying, trying to take advantage of all the cool stuff we have going on here. And so like, wow. I've, I found that, um, being able to learn in like a very progressive fashion in that way really helped me understand exactly like the why of everything of the orchestra and really understand like the way the art form is supposed to move in as much as like, I think some of the best method books like teach all of the principles right away. And then they just get more detailed and a little more challenging as you go. But at no point does the lesson change. Just like the amount of stuff you have to do with it increases a little bit. The violin flexibility studies comes to mind. I think that's the best written methods book because it's so simple at the beginning. Where it's just like octaves and fifths in whole notes. I and could never you... understand the, the harmonics on that, how that, I bombed that every time when you had to talk <laughs> about what note was going to come out with that. Because <laughs> we only probably spent two weeks or a week on how that worked and then you get tested on it, but yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds like great classes. You know, there was a class at Michigan State when I was there I wanted to take, but 
you know, I was only, I did my doctorate in like 20 months. I was only there for semesters, Wow. but it was called symbiosis. And it was a composition class where to be in that class, you had to get a partner to sign up for it with you. So like Mm -hmm. me, it would be dumb to get a euphonium player because I know about, but to, to seek harp or to Yeah. seek, um, you know, uh, you know, piano, I should have gotten a pianist to, Yeah. or a percussionist and you get a, something to partner with them. And then you write a piece for that person Yeah. and you work together on what the, they Yeah. teach you what it can and can't do. And then I would have loved that class. Yeah, the um I've tried to be the kind of performer and the kind of composer where like my life is just that way where like I'm writing music for my friends all the time and my friends are writing Me music too. for me because a rising tide raises all boats and so like we get uh, a lot of each other a lot of opportunity to really work on like the guts of what's what works and what doesn't for our instrument and then we're getting interesting new literature that fits the horn which is great I, I Yeah. one of my recitals um last year was undergraduate composers at University of Illinois. And I commissioned a bunch of people and I, I premiered all of this work. And I mean, some of it was like, like the toughest music I've ever learned in my whole life, but it was really cool to be able Be careful to say, what you ask for, right? yeah. And well, you know, that's a really funny thing. Like I made sure I had a sit down meeting with all of them and I outlined like, this is kind of what euphonium can do. This is the range I would write it for. This is what I would stay away from to try to really Do you outline think any stuff. of their music will live on? Do you think any of it would live on? Um, Have they published any of it? I mean... so, I mean, a lot of these cats are pretty young. Like some of them aren't even like, I might have just turned 21. They've got a long way to go. Oh, in, Yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of their career, like, uh, I'm not worried, but the thing I think that was most significant from this project was the idea of like, oh, I can write a substantial piece for euphonium and there's a good player at my school who will make sure it gets recorded for me. Yep. And having, That's important. if nothing else, then the, the value of something for their portfolio, that's good. And then the nostalgic value of, um, like this, this was somebody took a chance on me early and it like, they made sure that even if they couldn't give me a lot, they gave me something that was important and powerful and useful. I mean, I keep think it keeps them excited about continuing to write for instruments like euphonium going forward. And honestly, it, especially with like how efficient it is to get interesting chamber groups together. Like I think a call for scores model going forward is a really effective way to get like euphonium more involved in chamber music. Cause if you have a group, like, do you know the load bang ensemble? They're run out of the Northeast. I think New York, their ensemble is very eclectic. It's trombone, trumpet, bass, clarinet, and baritone voice. And they only do music originally written for them. And they have a summer festival that they hold that they invite composers to. And they do call for scores pretty regularly, I think. But the idea is like, um, I think the, the application fee when they do a call for scores is 25 to $50. So it's nothing super huge. But like when all of that money that goes into it becomes um, money for the quintet, obviously, to do stuff with, but then um, the prize money for the commission. So you're able to give composers something back when they've submitted pieces. And then maybe you have a piece that maybe didn't make the 
the honorable mentions list, or maybe that's what you have the honorable mentions list for, which I think honorable mention lists are super underrated because like you're really only helping people. If you say like, okay, we're only giving cash prizes to numbers one, two, and three, but like these five that made it were so cool and we really oh, liked no. them. And like, we wanted like to, a lot of competitions we wanted like to that. say like, this is an yeah. honorable mention. And that's, and like, it's it's a no cost way of giving something value back because somebody can list like honorable mention they at this competition on a res on a resume. <laughs> I agree. You know, I judge um, uh, competitions often with com composition, and you know, there it's hard to pick a winner from some of that stuff. Sometimes it's easier, but mm -hmm. what's good music and what's not? What's good art? What's not good art? You know, I mean, you, you, normally you can pick something based on is this going to work on our instrument. Sometimes stuff is written where it's just. Yeah not effective or or i don't know but it, what is good what's not good i mean it's really hard to say i think the honorable mention is is very important having more than one winner i think you know is important too because it's if you want people to write more music i've been on these um committees where you're you you commission a composer to write something like for instance for the women's brass conference to write something for the monarch brass yeah. which is the ladies version of summit brass and you know you can get a reputable composer and they write something for our, our group, they have no clue what they're doing. Yeah. And we've just paid this person a lot of money to write this. Or you can do a call for scores, pick your winners and give prizes. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think I think the call for scores model is the way. And you discover a new composer, you get more pieces to pick you 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 build a repertoire. I don't know. I just feel like, you know, commissioning one person that happen to do all this stuff. We never mm -hmm. get anything super great from that. And so. one of the the things that's nice about a call for scores model is you can list in the criteria like what your instrument is good at. Like you this is what the load bang does. They have a, like a one sheet of everything, the ensemble, like the ranges, the things that's good at, things to stay away from as like kind of a rubric of like if you want to have like a good chance at winning, you should probably think about these things. But it's not yeah. like necessarily rules for competition because obviously if you broke them in a really interesting way, like you're probably gonna win because you broke all the rules in a really interesting way. And that's the art of it. And if it's a if it's a worthy competition, they're going to care about the music first. But having all these references of like things to stay away from, things that really work for the horn, I think is a really great model going forward. And I think, I and that's and that's kind of the idea with uh, this project is having a one sheet that I can then give to people that are saying, or maybe not a one sheet, but like a document that I can distribute to people, the lecture recital that goes with it of like, this is euphonium, this is how it works. And like, there's so much to offer here that's being unutilized. And quite frankly, like, what does it say to some of our music students, especially when you can major in euphonium at basically every major every american music school let alone the major ones but that there are major universities in the u.s that have exclusively euphonium studios and they don't even get a a paragraph in the orchestration textbook it's a shame yeah yeah well i've argued that i always i asked one of my former university well actually i asked my alma mater ucf why do you offer this degree if you don't value it? When I was an adjunct there, I was asking for like, could they buy a new tuba for the school or whatever? Yeah. Or can I have a budget of money to buy a new you know, rep for the ensemble? Yeah. And they're crying poor mouth. I'm like, well, why do you even offer this degree if yeah. you're not going to respect it? And you won't give the teacher who's an adjunct, who's not full time, yeah. some money to help these kids. I'm only here one day a week. Look like you care. 
it's yeah. it's a it's a hot mess you know like you like i said you know it's in other countries they have baritone degrees baritone yeah. horn you know yeah. and they have euphonium they probably have alto horn or tenor horn degrees you yeah. know here we look like we, i don't know it's like the euphonium is the wicked stepchild you know it's like yeah. i'm lucky to have my teaching job that i have as someone who has all three of my degrees in euphonium performance i'm yeah. dang lucky and it's probably because i was of all the things I had done, you know, before I applied for this job, I was late coming into academia because I worked, you know, theme park musician. That's where I did a lot of my arranging and stuff when yeah, I was Disney. there. And, you know, I did that. And then I did a lot of freelance stuff for a long time with teaching private students. So that really padded my experiences of, you know, the teaching from beginners to adults, you know. But when you think about it, I mean, I'm dang lucky to have the job I have. You know, I mean, yeah. I was applying for some other jobs that was looking for tuba and euphonium, but tuba preferred. You know, yeah. and I know I was overqualified for some of those, but they also, there's someone that can be that wants to have a dang tubist. Why yeah. does it have to be the tuba teaching euphonium? Why can't the euphonium teach the tuba? I mean, it, I, that's what I do here. My yeah. tuba students win awards and prizes and stuff like that all yeah, over the place. Certainly. But it's just that, it's that mold we're talking about where everyone thinks it's supposed to be this and the, right, they write the euphonium and this is what we do. Well, this is what we could have as our professors. It's, you know, it's, it's really, it's music is moving in a very different way. And I think yeah. like someone like you, you're very smart to have that composition in the Thanks. theory side of things because yeah. you're going to be super valuable versus Thanks. my students now that want to do euphonium degrees. I'm like, I really feel, I feel scared for you. Yeah. The, the, uh, so having taken such a break between the bachelor's and the master's degree, like, I, I applied for composition at a lot of schools and euphonium at a lot of schools with the plan of like, I've, I've got to go whichever route just gets me funded because getting back to school was the most important thing for me. And it happened to be euphonium and being able to study. Well, it's a very interesting situation for me because like my teacher now, um, I knew him for about six years before studying my master's degree as my friend Scott Teggy, who runs the Gaudete Brass Quintet or contributes to running the Gaudete Brass Quintet. And now it's like, oh, well, this is kind of funky. Like Scott's my teacher. <laughs> but it's, and it's funny how that works that way. But like just being able to get into um, music school and getting access to some of the resources that it lends you and being able to take classes with the world-class composers that teach you, even if like for a while I wasn't, directly in the composition studio set me up to then apply for a dma in composition or um and be able to just write better and if we're looking to take euphonium in a more different direction like having a good teacher in euphonium is um accessible there are, I've, I've yet to meet euphonium players who don't want to talk about euphonium and share what the euphonium can do so i don't think there's a shortage in teachers but we need some different creativity in order to really take the horn in a new direction and give it the stage and the spotlight that I think it deserves. Be, don't be afraid to break the mold. Yeah. And that's, again, that's the idea for this project is a concerto that pushes the euphonium outside of where it's supposed to go. Cause like even within the new concerti that are coming out right now, where the euphonium is being asked to do all kinds of wild and crazy things, the technical and lyrical sides of the instrument are being pushed, but at no point has, I think, uh, like a euphonium player, I, as a euphonium player, I've not encountered a new concerto where I've been like, wow, euphonium can sound like that. It's the question I, or the statement I usually come away with is like, wow, 
the lyricism of that line is something I hadn't thought of. Or the that kind of a run would require so much technique and different ergonomics than I'm used to. But that's very different than something like Matty Barber's doing, where you're putting a bass clarinet mouthpiece onto the horn, and it's like, okay, the music right now is the interplay of the overtones over this like husky reed fundamental amplified by this tube. That's, that's cool. experimental and that's new, and it's funky and wild and that's what i'm interested in exploring so yeah i think it's gonna be great i can't wait to hear it cool i'll keep you in the loop uh i think this is a good place to wind down if that's okay okay awesome awesome thanks so much for being on the show i really appreciate it oh you're very welcome you know it's it was delighted to get your your um offer you know your, when you inquired about it i thought well someone found my paper you know and um it wasn't a dissertation so it's not super easily searchable you know, and that's where uh, I, I wish it were a dissertation because then people find it easier through the, you know, when they're doing the research and stuff. But um, absolutely, I enjoyed it. You know, it started out as just my class. That paper started from the research and bibliography class during my doctorate. Oh, nice. And if I, you know, and then I was able to pick a subject for that that I knew I wanted to use possibly for a lecture recital. Mm -hmm. And luckily, my committee said yes. And that's then the awesome. other paper I did was that uh, um, the Juan Tizal and his influences on Duke Ellington that came from my jazz history class. And I was allowed to do that as a, as a presentation to as a lecture recital too. So I feel like if my advice or anybody in here, if you're going to go on and do a doctorate or something like that, don't do tons of research, you know, if you could double dip. Yeah. <laughs> that's I, got done, you know? I mean, and then those, those, both of those subject matter, the one tease all, no one had done real anything on him except for, this one guy, you know, there was one or two people out here who had done any research on Juan Tizel at the time. And then the, the whole cello, the wind band, there was papers that had been done for that, but it'd been several years. So it's mm -hmm. time for someone to probably do it again because it's been 10 or 11 years since mine, mine did that. But mm -hmm. I, I feel like it's, uh, it's worth doing and the, the projects that you're going to do for your degrees. Make sure it's something you're genuinely interested in because it's so much easier to work on something you really want to do versus someone telling you to do something. Yeah, when your heart's in it, the work's easy. Um, yeah. uh, a, a quote I've been hearing, uh, people use from Tim cook recently. He's the CEO of Apple. Um, he said the, the, you'll work harder than you've ever worked in your life, but the tools will feel light in your hands. And I yes. love that. And I love that. True. That is <laughs> um, great. where can, uh, folks find you on social media? Oh, you know, I'm on Facebook. I don't have any Twitter, any of those things. I have a hard time managing the three emails that I have, plus all the boards of directors. And now I'm on like two faculty. It's just, it's crazy. All the, the, the stuff I had a Facebook or, I mean, I'm sorry, a website, but I found I was never doing anything to it. It was just stagnant and nothing was happening. So I just kind of let that go. I'll probably regret it because some other Gail Robertson probably has bought the Gail Robertson domain. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, and you can find me through Facebook or email. Uh, you know, I'm happy to, you know, answer anybody's questions or whatever or collaborate in any way. I, I certainly think that we should do a consortium or something with you. Uh, talking fine. to you today Let's and meeting it. you for the first time is makes me realize I want to commission you to write something for me. Thanks so much. So, I'd love to. I, I have a few you might like already. <laughs> What's that? I have a few you might like already. I'll send some your way. Cool. You know, we didn't talk about my composition side of things. You know, um, I would say that, you know, there's... I think that we start out as one path, but also our paths kind of go different ways. I think mm -hmm. my biggest calling that I have for me is as a composer, but I'm saving it for 
it's later in my life that I'll probably yeah. will really, really dive into much of that. Now I do it sort of as my fun escape from academia and from all yeah. the hard things. Like, I mean, I love to sit down and compose. I'm in my room mm. now at my house. It's got all where I do all my stuff. Yeah. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something I'm going to do later when I guess I'm not able to play anymore. Who knows what? I hope I'm never, yeah. ever not able to play, but. I'm so, so. too. Um, well, and I think it can be powerful to have like composition as an outlet, even if like maybe it doesn't grow into something that uh, has much enormity in like this phase of your life or at like this time. I think about a musician like Charles Ives. I don't know that Charles Ives really got to see how much he changed Western music when he was alive. Um, but especially oh. when I was uh, studying music in like in music school, I, I can't think of a more interesting and inspirational composer uh, or, or at least on, he, he makes Mount Rushmore of American composers, at least for me, just in terms of like trying to push the boundary and really not caring what people have said about it. And there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of people who say like, oh, Charles Ives music sounds bad. I don't think those people know how to listen to Charles Ives or understand what's going on. True. They're trying to compare it to something that has a melody. Yeah. yeah. One Ives has a melody. It's just two melodies does, and two yeah, different does, keys yeah. that are passing in between each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just not right in front of you. Yeah. 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 That's kind of the fun of it. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Great. Well, it is a real well, thank treat you speaking again for with you. Today. Me to be here today. Yeah, absolutely. I had a blast. Me too. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Musical Trick Artista, the podcast. You can find us online at mcgowanmusic.com or listen on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit us at Andrew McGowan on YouTube or Music McGowan on Instagram. 